You are listening to The Creative Curmudgeon, and today I am speaking with Anna Joy Springer. Uh, she has been in bands such as Blatz, The Grups, and Cypher in the Snow. She's also written books, is a professor in San Diego, and is there anything else that I should mention right now? Those are most of the things that I have done. Um, I... I've been listening to your music since 1999 when I used to religiously oh. listen to the Blatz and Filth shit split. And other than, you know, there was the cover and then the grainy photos inside. And that was my only indication of like, you know, what these people looked like. And, you know, obviously there wasn't like the videos you could just watch online at that point and whatever. And now we're having this like conversation through this technology and i i don't know if i'm articulating this very well but living in the future is weird that's it's, all that's all i'm saying it's weirder than i would have ever imagined um so did you i have the record or did you have the cd i had the cd i have the record now i have so the, the pictures are really small yeah i have the alternative tentacles like reissue like oh. i got that later but in, in high school i just like had the had the CD, but like, you know, I, so I thought I was cool, like having the CD and then like people kind of, you know, then they would have the record and then like, you know, kind of like flex that. Um, but yeah. We'll have to get you like one of the um, demo tapes. Oh yeah. So I could we'll just get like, you a de demo tape so you can just flash it at people and they can faint. Well, I don't know that like now that like, you know, I'm almost I'm almost 40 and whatever to, you know, Not just like show, showing off my my cred or whatever. Like, oh, yeah, check out this. Like, I don't know if that's the same effect, but Maybe I appreciate not. that. Maybe not. You're right. It, it never works for me. Right. <laughs> um, I'm currently reading uh, The Vicious Red Bellic Love. Wow. And just for people who are listening to this who aren't familiar with it, um, you know, there's an, there's an underlying theme, you know, where it's the loss and death of, of a loved one. Um, but, you know, stylistically, it's like all over the place, which I mean, in like a good way, you know, it, it transitions from a lot of different things. There's poetry, there's visual art, there's like journal entries, there's fake religious pamphlets, the tale of Gilgamesh, etc. Um, and I thought that this was interesting, because like, I've always uh, wanted to like write like a longer work and have like a book length thing, but it's been very hard for me to figure out a system to make that work specifically because of like ADHD. And hence most of the things that I make are like things like, you know, songs or poems or whatnot, where like I could get this done in like one sitting and whatever. And it's not like a long-term, long-term thing. But the reason I'm bringing all this up is because when we were messaging back and forth, um about figuring out a time to do this like you brought up needing to be reminded of this because you have adhd um and a light bulb went off like you know i feel like this book the way that it's written is specifically <laughs> like a love letter to adhd in a way and i was curious if i'm full of shit or not i don't think so um i don't think you're full of shit about that at all like i don't know what you're full of shit about but um that is i think i don't think i mean i didn't know i had adhd when i wrote the book you know, I just, um, I just knew that it was a story about there being a lot of different stories that were true and happening at the same time and like how they were overlapping and affecting each other and like trying to figure out which one to believe. And, um, and so now that I, I mean, I didn't get diagnosed until 
a few years ago and like when I was in my late 40s and now that I look back everything in my life totally makes sense and that book is very much a, a book that has like that shows what it's like to be able to think through massive ideas um that overlap in your mind and that are hard to separate out, but to use the structure of the book to try to separate them out and make them blend, mm -hmm. you know? And um, it is really hard to have all those different pieces going on um, to make a longer project, to find through lines and stuff. So it took a long time to do it. Um, but, you know, I have some advice about finding through lines. If you have a, a project that has a whole bunch of different parts and aspects um, and just to like, imagine that at some point there's a way to pull them together. It's just going to, it's hard. <laughs> it's just hard. Sure. Yeah. And like, I'm, I'm neurodivergent in a bunch of ways. And I think that a big struggle with that is like, you know, there's overcoming like the societal shame of that or of needing to do things like differently or whatever which is an ongoing thing like overcoming okay. that that uh that brainwashing and whatever but also just like realizing like oh this these like systems that like work for other people as far as like doing shit aren't going to like work for me and then therefore like going through like the the trial and error process to like figure out something um was that like a thing both both for like you know creating stuff and also for just like you know reading or taking stuff in was that something that like you had to like struggle with yourself I'm assuming I'm still you know and and more even in certain ways now that I'm older because um ADHD and I don't know about other types of neurodivergence I hope more people do um more science about this but like it gets super affected by hormonal changes that happen later in life in the same, in similar ways to how it gets um, affected by hormonal changes uh, in the teens, mm -hmm. you know? And so um, I, it, you know, different parts of the challenges, different challenges became more challenging as I started heading towards perimenopause. So, um, and so now, and now I have a really a lot harder time, reading sometimes than I did even 15 years ago, which is, you know, not easy when you're a literature professor, right? And I'm reading people's manuscripts all the time for their graduate degrees and my own work. And so, yeah, I'm learning all sorts of workarounds and then also just learning about what I am not able to do. Um, and the thing that's cool about creating, um, like using the way that your mind works in all of its, you know, its various ways. Like if you, if, if you can work the way your mind works and find what feels like, if not good, true, <laughs> then it's going to make a structure of your art that is really cool and interesting. It just, like for everyone making art is hard for everyone making art is hard. Um, and then, but if you can find the way that your brain makes patterns, it makes patterns that make your book more true than just the words of it. I find um, it's like finding 
a jazz rhythm or something and putting it into a punk song with drum beats. And you're like, oh, people don't do that. But this is how my mind works with these kinds of um, melodies or whatever. And then suddenly you have this super amazing music or like math rock or something like that, where you're just like, oh my God, this has never done be been done before, but it makes total sense. Um, I don't know if that answers your question. Well, what I think I'm hearing you say is that like, if you find something that just like, you just feels right inherently on some level even if you can't like really like figure out why exactly then like the spirit of what you are making will be like more authentic and then better regardless of like the actual structure of things am I understanding that correctly yeah yeah I mean and I think this is such this is one of the hard parts is like when do you force form onto what mm -hmm. you're doing or when do you like make yourself do something a certain way? And when do you let yourself do things that feel easy? And for me, it's like, I try, you know, you try to, I've tried to make myself do something a certain way, like write straightforward fiction. Mm -hmm. uh, and it just, you know, it's really boring to me. It's hard, it's hard for me to stay engaged when I'm mm -hmm. doing that, even though I can teach it and I love to read it and whatever, but it's boring to me. So like, if it's, you know, I guess here's one of like the, things I tell students all the time is like, if it's boring you while you're creating it, stop doing that. Right. <laughs> Crack yourself up and like, you know, make some sort of a, you know, UFO fly through or so like make something that is ridiculous that won't bore you anymore. But it's also really boring to do the structural work at the end of writing a book. And, and, and you have, and that's one thing that I don't think you have to do, but for me, I have to do in order to organize my thoughts. So it's like that, you know, let yourself play more, but you also have to clean out the garage sometimes. Right. Um, yeah. How did you, like, what is your method now for reading and writing? If you don't mind me asking. Depends on what I'm working on. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so depends on what I'm working on. It depends on how much time I have, if there's a deadline. Um, but right now I have like three projects that are not small projects. You know, they're like multiple pages up to a couple hundred pages and they're visual and they're written. And um, what I wish, <laughs> what I wish is that I could work on one of them at a time and finish it, you know, and what I find is that um, they all speak to each other and they all have to do with different aspects of things that I'm thinking about right now, because this is what I'm thinking about right now. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, I am emphasizing, or I'm giving time to different ones at different times. So right now, one of the things I'm working on is a rebus project. It's a picture puzzle. I'm like translating my own writing into words and images um, that readers put themselves into by translating the images into words. So, um, and I can show you a picture of it, you know, it's- Is it like emojis in a way or like print speak? It, you know what it is, it's like old fashioned emojis from like the 18th century and the 19th century. Um, they're, so it's like, if it was something like, I will always love you, it might, you might have an owl, I will always love you or something I like see. that or a heart or something. So sometimes it's homophones, like the word sounds like the picture. Sometimes it's like the picture's a symbol. Sometimes the picture's like a metaphor. So there's all these things that, you know, it can be. And um, so that's one thing that I'm doing. It's kind of like a way to try to 
force reader interaction in a way that's a little bit like performing. Mm -hmm. No, it's like, I can't see what other people are doing with it, but at least I know they're having to do something with it, like sing with me or whatever. Right. Um, yeah. Um, is, is, are you, sorry, sorry, go or, ahead. No, it's okay. No, you go, go, go. Oh, I was just going to ask, like, if um, you're writing that, like, as you go along, like, are you, like, adding the images, like, as you go along, or are you, like, retroactively going back and then being like, well, I'm going to change aisle to owl or whatever. Yeah, I'm, so I wrote the stuff, much of the stuff that I'm, tr you know, translating, I say, into Rebus um, when I was in graduate school, so like 20 years ago. And um, and now I'm, I'm having to change both the words and the pictures in order to go with the pictures. And also because there's this design element where I can't put a giant picture in one place and have another giant picture right under it. Anyway, there's, this, like, there's like all these things that stop me from trying to do what I want and force me to have to make a different choice. So in some ways it's like a little bit like a constraint-based problem, but I also get to change the rules whenever I want to. I can show you a picture. Um, but yeah, so there's that. And I'm working on a longer piece that is um, an S. I thought it was going to be an essay, like a 40 page essay, long essay. And it's very long now and so I'm trying to cut back and that's you know a lot of my work is about like can I cut this and it will mm -hmm. still make sense sure um was there anybody that was like influential to you like kind of doing away with trying to create things in a in a more like neurotypical sense or whatever like even before you realized that you were neurodivergent or didn't yeah. work with these systems? Like who, who, who made you realize like, yeah, actually fuck this. Yeah. Um, the, the work that first spoke to me so much um, that was writing like that was from my mentor, Kathy Acker and Kathy Acker's uh, you know, she's dead now, but she's um, people think of her as kind of a punk feminist writer, like the punk feminist writer alongside Burroughs and like those kinds of mm -hmm. um, older uh, experimental white guys. But um, she, she's, I hope people still know about her in 15 years. She's a really, 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 really brilliant writer. And um, sh her whole trip was like, the concept of literature is about colonization. And um, I'm going to just basically mess with the, um, the perfection of literature. I'm going to like fuck up literature and I'm gonna fuck up all these things, you know? And, and so it was experimental and postmodern and really painful at times and then hilarious at times. So mixing like all this trauma and abjection and hilarity and like really incisive political um, commentary. Anyway, she was, she was my favorite. And so I found her and she became my teacher. Um, in San Francisco and then okay. yeah I'd imagine it's like a lot harder with th that or when you're kind of more deconstructing something like you have to become a lot more in tune with just like like what you were saying before how something just like inherently feels to create because it feels like you're less able to measure it compared to like what other people are doing and like figure out like whether it's good that way so you have to be more like internally tuned in or whatever is that it is, is that yeah I mean it's not even internal I mean sometimes it's internally tuned into like does this feel right you know and what does right feel like or you know how do I know especially when you're at the beginning of a project or in the middle of it like how do I know when it's 
everything's sort of crumbling down and there's too much of it that it's gonna feel right. And so, and you know, that's, that's a whole nother thing that takes a long time, but, um, but also it's like so good to let yourself off the hook about making something good. Mm -hmm. Um, because like, I don't know if you, I, I could just never tell what was good and I could never tell what other people thought was good or why. And I just didn't, you know, I've like spent so much of my life confused about what normal people think, you mm -hmm. know? And, um, and so it's like, oh, okay, well, if I'm not worried about what normal people think, what would I do? You know? Um, so, so, kind, so mm -hmm. was that like a thing you felt like all along, like you, where you didn't, cause I'm, I'm kind of hearing you say yeah. that, like, you don't care whether something is like considered good in the traditional sense or, or not compared as opposed to like how it like, you know, makes you feel like creating it or whatever. Was that how you always felt? No, I, I care if something's good. And I think that things can make me feel terrible while I'm making them and still be good. So this is weird, right? Let, let, like, can I, can I rephrase that? I, yeah. I, I don't mean like yeah. good as in good, like overall or good to you or whatever. I, I let me, let me phrase that better. I, I mean, just like good in the tr sense of like, oh, are, are other people going to like this? Yeah. So um, I was, you know, I was really lucky to be raised by um, a sort of hippie-ish a 70s mom who um, was really anti being normal. And I think my mom probably also had ADHD and was, you know, she was never diagnosed before she died. Mm -hmm. But like now that I understand it, I look back and I'm like, oh, that's why she couldn't stand X, Y, and Z, you know, and was so frustrated all the time and couldn't be around people. And, you know, um, so, but she was raised or she raised me telling me things like, you know, um, supposed to isn't in my dictionary and you know it's good to be weird and you know and so like that had pros and cons but the pros were that like I never thought I was gonna be able to be like other people you know I try mm. I, I wanted to at different times but not with the art and there was some way that art I was allowed to be weird, weird and wrong like art was the place to be weird and wrong Mm -hmm. And then as I got older and I was, and I learned that, oh, like there's a way to be badly weird and wrong, <laughs> you know, right. like, with these people, they, you know, it's not like that. And I still struggle with that. Um, like, oh, I wish that I didn't feel like what I did was going to like step on people's toes or they were going to hate me. Or I wish I was, I wish I didn't have those worries. Mm -hmm. um, but I do still have those worries but, and, and sometimes they get in the way from me, in the way of me making my work. And then some, hopefully I can get enough encouragement to do it anyway. Right. That I'll do it. You know, yeah. still having a community. Exactly. Some yeah. kind of, some kind of pull to do it, even though I'm worried about being like ostracized or whatever, you know, if hurting people or being bad or whatever, you know, and right that's what community or sangha or whatever is for. Um, I, I uh, yeah. speaking of like, you know, your upbringing or whatever, I, I, I'd like to start at the beginning and like ask like, what got you into being a creative person to begin with? I was an only child and I had to, and I had a mom with not a um, father in the house 
And so I had to really figure out what to do with my time, <laughs> you know? Um, so I think like my mom was very creative and, you know, could have or should have been an artist. And so she encouraged making stuff out, up out of the blue and seeing, you know, seeing multiple uh, multiple aspects of the world, like looking at clouds and seeing what you could see there or whatever, you know, being curious in that way. And um, and so I think I was just from the beginning really encouraged to um, find ways to make myself not be bored. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I was bored a lot. Um, and so, um, you know, it was TV or art or really getting in trouble. And, you know, I sort of juggled those three things forever. What got you into punk specifically? Um, when I learned that there were women in punk who were, who shared political values with me. So first I heard punk that was like Black Flag and um, I'm trying to think of who else, but like Black Flag and sort of beer bands yeah. that guys around me liked. And I was like, I liked the energy, but kind of, but it also just seemed like kind of abusive men. Like I didn't know the difference between the aggression and abusiveness mm-hmm. um, in some ways. And um, so then like, I think I, I heard like X and crass and I was like, Oh, this is poetry. And you're allowed to, it was sort of like, you're allowed to be smart. Right. I was, you know, I was writing um, this article for um, an anthology that Cornell University is putting out about stuff in their punk archive. Um, and they have a bunch of my stuff. And it took me so long to realize that what I was trying to say was that, you know, punk is a way to be intellectual when you're a kid. Right. You know, and there's so few ways to do that. I don't know, maybe in like the city or some New York or something, you're allowed to do that, but you weren't allowed to do that like in Merced, you know, mm-hmm. sounds like you understand. I think so. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of different punk is such a vague term. It could mean so many, you know, there's the, you know, SLC punk sort of like theory of like, let's just like fucking like, you know, destroy ourselves and destroy society, like anarchism in like a really like juvenile sort of way that is Violence. even divorced from like political yeah. ideology or whatever yeah. versus yeah. like yeah stuff like crass that's like you know a lot more thought-provoking mm-hmm. yeah I mean I think that and and those two things on top of each other I think made sense to me as a teenager yeah you know, that nothing else did you know like there were you know there was like poetry from school but it didn't seem to understand some of the politics of nightmare that were happening everywhere. And then there's like, you know, dudes drinking in the orchard or all of us drinking in the, you know, and getting wasted and it had that, but it didn't have any thinking to it. And so I think punk like for me blended like my inherent rage and nihilism with like my caring and my desire to understand more. Right. Yeah. No, that totally makes sense. The thing that I, uh struggled with when i was first getting into punk was that like i was getting into bands that like you know a couple of peers were like into or whatever but like i still felt like not a part of like the 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 punk scene or whatever i became like well i i I grew up in phoenix and i still i still live in phoenix but i grew up in like the phoenix like suburbs and whatever so but like it took me a little while to find 
people to like play in bands with and people that yeah. were like to feel like I was like included in anything like that. And yeah. at the beginning of it, though, it was like I would listen to, you know, with Operation Ivy or Blatz or anything, there's like a lot of emphasis on like the word we, for instance. Uh, and so I, uh, uh, which I think is cool. Cause it's like, you know, kind of even just similar to like, you know, old songs like we shall overcome or whatever, where there's like that community feeling yeah. that's like built in with just like that substitute of a word. But yeah. when I was like getting into it, I was like, all right, this isn't now I need to like find like-minded people. Otherwise like this, this doesn't really isn't something that I can directly relate to because I don't have any friends like in this yet. Yeah. Like, was that, was that a thing that you struggled with at all when you were first getting into it was like finding that community? I mean, yes and no. So the yes part of um, the yes part is I'm in a small town in central California that is pretty conservative. Um, and you know it doesn't hook into any metro center with like trains or anything you know it's in the central valley it's called in some um news um articles and stuff now like the appalachia of california you know it's 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 separate merced and um and so there were some people who looked like punks or had this um anti-establishment look vibe to them that i was drawn to but they weren't people who were, um, as far as I knew, like reading or anything, um, painting or doing artists or that I knew of, um, and they were older. Um, and so there wasn't really anybody around. I had, you know, close friends who were interested in some of the same musics and stuff, but they weren't, um, they weren't coming from a similar, um, state of trauma and rage that I was coming from in the house that I was in and just the way that I perceived the world. Um, hold on a sec, my computer. Okay. Um, and so, um, and so I really wanted to get to the coast where people were, but I was also really, sh I was also super shy and I didn't know it. Mm -hmm. like, I had no idea I was shy, but at the same time that I was learning about, you know, the fact of punk culture, I also was starting to like drink and use drugs and do a lot of like super danger behaviors. And, um, and so that was a way that I could be like not shy with other people, but I also wasn't super fully engaged, you know, it took a right. long time for me to become sober in community with people I cared about and respected and could trust, you know, like that took a long time. Um, first I had to be wasted with people who were kind of trustworthy. And um, so, yeah, it took a long time. Um, and then, you know, when I was in Merced before I found um, community of punks, self-identified punks, I was just not identifying. I was like, that's so stupid. You know, I was so like, even describing yourself as punk, you know, it's everyone has this thing, right? Like even calling yourself a punk isn't punk, you know, like that's right. too in a box, you know, nobody's going to put me in a box. And so I was like that. And then I realized like the value of actually claiming a culture. I guess I thought that if you define yourself by some predetermined community or subculture or whatever, you didn't get to be creative anymore. Right. You had to just do the rules or whatever. And um, that wasn't appealing to me. But and at I the same time, well, I'm sorry, what was that? And I never really did that. Like that yeah. was, something, you know, Blatz is a very chaotic band. And, you know, I hope somebody someday does like a, a book about Blatz, not because of the music, but because um, the different members of it was such a weird 
the more I think about it as I get older, the more I'm like, how the fuck did that happen? Like Marshall, the um, bass player was in his forties and had been in, I think he'd been in Vietnam. He was a veteran and um, he was like, we didn't know anything about his identity. He, um, you know, he, at our Blatt's reunion that we had um, in 2000 something, like he was the first time he ever put a sticker on his guitar in identifying that he um, had, he was either an ally or part of the LGBTQ community, you know? And, and then I was just like, well, why? And then I was like, oh, he was a veteran. He couldn't, right. like he would have lost his, he would have lost his benefits when Blatt's was playing. Right, right. Well, I wouldn't lose my benefits by saying I was queer back then, but he would have, and we didn't know, you know, and I don't know if he, you know, I don't know how he identifies, but he put that sticker on and it was a really big deal for him for that shit. You know what I mean? So That's like, awesome. he's older. There are people who are 15, you know, years or 16 years old in it, like eggplant. And then I'm over at Mills college, you know, mm-hmm. um, so it's just, it's a very weird band. Um, and so community that we, like, I never understood that we, and I was also looking for that we, um, and I think I like the way that that LGBTQ communities um, put that little asterisk at the end now. I don't know if you've seen it, but like yeah. there's an asterisk, right? And it's just like, I want to have that next to we, like we, except for all of us don't fit in, like none of us feel like we belong here mm-hmm. and we're all going to kind of like not exactly click. And that's what makes it interesting. Have you considered writing such a book about Blatt's? I, I haven't, um, I haven't, I want someone else to do this because I'm not that good of a researcher and I'm too close to it. I, I, I've, I've thought a little bit about it. I'm, I want to write a book about that has all of the lyrics that I've written in the bands mm-hmm. and then sort of telling the history around the lyrics as a way to just do kind of cultural history. Um, but I'd rather have it be someone who's like a better historian and, you know, also somebody who doesn't have as much, um, personal history and drama with band members sure (laughs) you know no that makes sense um i want to talk about like when you started performing like did it take some like working up to performing something like so abrasive in front of people like was that something that came naturally to you or is it something that you had to like work yourself up to in some way that's a really funny question, Jason. Did you, oh, let me ask you, what about you? Like, when did you start performing? Um, I, I started performing when I was 17. My first 17. band was when I was 17, but it took me a lot of years to get comfortable performing in front of people in a way that, um, like, I, I, I kind of embraced being, like, a character of sorts. Because, mm-hmm. like, it, 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 it takes, like, a a um being comfortable with the fact that you might embarrass yourself yeah in order to do that and like that 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 takes a long time in my experience to like work up to yeah I um that I that idea of creating a persona to be on stage that's so smart you know because you are performing you know Mm -hmm. so why not perform as a persona but um I you know how I did it was I was just really wasted um and and I, you know, even before the very first time I went to try out with Blatz, I just remember standing around the corner with my best friend at the time and just like pounding beers. Um, 
not beers that I didn't even love. It might have even been Blatt's because it was like, I didn't know I was like witchy at the time. But like, oh, if you pound like 17 Blatt's beers before you go try out for Blatt's, then you're definitely going to be in the band. Um, mm-hmm. And so I did, you know, and for me, as soon as the music played, I would and I was wasted enough. It was just 100 percent natural. Mm-hmm. However, when I think about how I used to play, um, how, how I used to be on stage and how I came to be on stage after years of doing it more and knowing how comfortable I, I'm very, very comfortable on stage. It's one of the places in the world where I'm the most comfortable. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's whatever, like people, I'm in control in a way, right? Like I'm not having a conversation exactly. So I'm in control and I, you know, I can just, I can keep turning things the way I need them to be. And especially when there's music playing different when I'm reading from my work or whatever. But um, I was, it was really, really easy to, for me to do that, especially when I was wasted. And then when I got sober or, you know, when I was playing in bands where I didn't want to be like that, um, I realized that I could engage more and that that was even more fun. I used to use being on stage when I was in the early years of Blatt of being absolutely just away from everything mm-hmm. in a way that felt so amazing. <laughs> like it's almost like being in the pit when you're kind of getting like pummeled, you know? Um, and it, it was like, like words kind of leave your brain and you're just kind of like in brain, the moment. Yeah. You're in the moment. I'm like in the dark, but I'm kind of embodied but not really, you know, it's like I'm embodied, but not in my head, but, you know, but not like completely dissociated. It's just this weird, this weird way of being that I loved, but then I wanted to feel what it was like to be there at the same time. Right. You know, and to be able to control it more, um, be more like decide what I wanted to sound like, or if I wanted to say something, or if I wanted to be facing the crowd. I mean, one of the great things about the kind of punk band Blatz was, or that I learned to be is that like, we could just, if we didn't feel like watching people in the audience or being watched, we would just turn around, you know, or lay down or something. So it was like, there were all the rule was like, as long as you're doing it, the opposite of how you're supposed to, everything's cool. Mm -hmm. That's a great rule. Yeah, absolutely. You know, for any art project. What was it like performing with, multiple front people versus being like the lone person do you think i would imagine that in an ideal circumstance it would be like kind of like being like on a sports team or something based on my understanding of how sports even works <laughs> but like you know you're passing the ball to this person or whatever and setting them up for success or whatever but that that could easily uh transition into like this person doing this and then the other person being like, man, well, fuck that. I'm going to like outstage them or something, even if it's like <laughs> unconscious. Was there any of that or how did that work? I don't, I don't think there was any of that. I mean, like, or, or maybe it was so much of that, that there's no way to notice. Like I, in Blatz and the Grups, um, I sang with Jesse mm-hmm. um, and in Blatz, it was with Jesse and Annie and Jesse's like such an outperformer. Um, he would, you know, every time he got on stage after a year or so in Blatt's, like everyone would take him off stage and remove all his clothing. So I was just like, nobody's looking at us at all, you know? Um, and so uh, that was kind of 
I think I kind of liked that. It was this way of feeling like I wasn't really being watched. Like I could freak out. I could have an audience and I wasn't being watched. But then when I, um, but, but then when we were in the groups, we really started playing off each other more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was even more fun. Um, it was like, you know, it was like playing off a guitarist or a drummer who didn't have to drum or play guitar, <laughs> you know, so they could do just, you could play with each other without them having to focus on something else. Um, and so the singing sort of, you know, like the lyrics just get in your head. So you can just do that on background and then we would just play with each other. So that was really super fun with, um, with Jesse. And it's like, it's like playing off the crowd too, but with someone who does want your success, you know, like who, who needs you or doesn't need you necessarily, but like wants everything to be good, you know? Right. Um, and so then, yeah. And then in Cypher in the Snow, there were, there were other singers, but for a while I was singing by myself and I didn't know how I was going to like that. Um, but then that made me connect with the audience really differently. Mm-hmm. Turns out I really like to connect while I'm performing. <laughs> I found, you know, I found out after I stopped, you know, being in blackout all the time. Like, I really like that play that happens between more than one person when you're performing. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, I would imagine it, it, it might have even been like at, at, at first, like helpful if, if, if any part of you was like scared to be like on stage to have like two other people that were like, all right, we're like up front together. Like we're a, we're a crew. It was also a like scared of getting like egomaniacal. So I, or scared. It was like both fear of being an idiot or fear of being like a control freak egomaniac. Mm-hmm. You know, that when there's more people there, you just, you can't be the star. And so you don't have to worry about becoming that kind of a star personality. And you also don't have to worry about being the one everyone's looking at while you're fucking up because nobody's looking at you or whatever. Like there's no, it's like there's, there was, we, there was no focal point. So that's kind of nice um, yeah. to be. And, you know, and Annie would get so mad about certain things and like leave stage in the middle of the show or not come, or I was out of, the country for a year and we would just play anyway and it was this you know this real like we're not a star thing mm-hmm. uh, kind of in this in a similar way to how riot girl like people in in riot girl bands would trade instruments mm-hmm. so that, you know some people were the drummer or the guitarist but they would all train in tr- trade instruments and show that like we're all doing different parts of this and it's nobody's the big expert right a little bit like that um Yes, very comforting. Did you do anything at the time to like not throw out your voice or was any of that conscious? No, I threw my voice from the beginning. Like it was like I it was the thing that I loved from even when I was like I said, like just drinking a bunch like that, that being able to be that loud. And it was okay, And it wasn't freaking anybody out. And in fact, that's what I was there to be doing. Mm hmm. I was there to be being that loud and that obnoxious and that, you know, opinionated and to take up space, all this stuff that like I'd been told in so many different ways to stop doing my whole life. Right. Um, How did you guys make cohesive songs? Was it like one of you would bring like a lyrical idea to the table and then and this is for like any of your bands yeah. and then like somebody else would build on top of that or like, how did that work exactly? 
it was really different with different bands. Um, but generally, so every now and again, I would have lyrics first or Jesse or another member of the band would have lyrics first. But typically, I think this is true, typically the musicians who played instruments would have music first and I would write to it. It, it would go back and forth, but mostly it was that. Mm -hmm. um, or Jesse would write to it. Like I said, sometimes we had lyrics first. Um, when I was in the Grups and um, Matt McCall was the uh, guitarist, Matt was in Op Ivy and he then was in Rancid. And he oh, yeah, Matt Freeman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, well, the, who called himself Reckon? You're right, he's Freeman. Um, but uh, <laughs> he went by a different name, I think, for maybe I'm wrong. Um, mm. So um, he is a really amazing songwriter, like a phenomenal songwriter. And I wasn't, like, I was a poet and a performer, but he knew how to take just a few words and craft it into this kind of song. And so just the one time I gave him a poem and he turned it into a song and I was like, holy shit, this is amazing. And so then I sort of tried to learn a little bit more about song structuring, which I never did learn exactly. Um, usually it was like that. Um, when I was in Cypher in the Snow, I would call uh, Daniela, our guitarist and, um, like I would come up with a melody because I always had melodies in my head mm -hmm. always. And like often sometimes like multiple parts of a song, but I can't play music and I can't write music. Um, and so I would call Daniela and like hum the parts into her, her answering machine <laughs> or into, into their answering machine. And, um, and then they would figure out how to work it out on the guitar that's a cool thing to have. I hope they still have those, uh, those tapes or whatever. I don't know. I doubt it. Um, yeah. it was probably at some hunk house and, you know, is in a dumpster long ago, but, um, yeah, I wish, I still wish I would really, really, really learn love after I'm finished with this freaking book that's taking forever. Um, I want, I really want to learn about making music digitally because I can't play instruments and I, have to find people if I ever want to play music and it's not as easy a lot of musicians have moved on to writing after after being in bands for a few years myself included I'm more so focused on writing than, than bands and I think mm -hmm. it seems like part of it would just be like the how much it wears on you to set up band practice and deal with like egos and whatnot and just like the strain of like performing even when it goes well and that at one point just like getting to a point where you say like fuck this i'm going to do something where i'm more reliant on myself than needing to be reliant on other people kind of like even what you're saying with yeah. uh with digital music but as it relates to writing um was that sim similar to what you went through or why did you end up becoming more of a writer than musician i mean i think the truth is that they all take time. Both things take time and I'm not independently wealthy. So I also am working full time. I was also going to school full time or, you know, often full time when I was in bands. Um, and there's just not enough time to do all the things. Um, and so my mentor, Kathy Acker died at 46, I think 46 or 47. And she was like, so wanting me to prioritize the writing or to lean into the writing, um, and I was like, I can't both learn how to write and be 
going to rehearsals three, two or three times a week and working full-time and being in school. I just can't. Yeah. Um, and so I, then I just devoted myself to learning about writing and um, practicing that and then going to graduate school for writing. But I really wish I could, I don't think you have to pick. I really don't think you have to pick. I just do think like for projects, it's hard to do everything at once. Sure. Yeah. It, that makes sense. Um, and if I could be, I'm dying to make music again. Like I'm fucking like, I've got, I've got music in my head all the time. I don't know. I don't, lyrics don't come to me so much anymore, but they would probably, but I wish I, the, the, the book that you're reading, the vicious red relic love has an audio component to it that um, Tara Jane O'Neill and Rachel Carnes, um, who is in this amazing band called the need, um, and Tara Jane O'Neill is a phenomenal, like phenomenal musician um, from a bunch of different bands. And they made music soundtrack that I recorded parts of the book too. Um, and you can, you can get that for free somewhere like on Bandcamp or something like that, or I think even on YouTube and it's all the forest sections of the book. I would oh, love okay. to be able to, make my projects be visual audio and literary always um i i knew of this audio companion piece but i didn't realize that it was that it was on Bandcamp. i'll, I'll have to check yeah, that out i mean i think it's even on youtube for free somebody put it up which i was really glad about it's awesome yeah they made amazing music um i wanted to ask you a little bit about teaching um i know somebody who's a lawyer who has also performed in hardcore bands mm. and he described the two as being similar in <laughs> that it's uh it's performance it's uh using your mannerisms in order to like hypnotize people in a sense mm. um and kind of what you were saying there's like a with performance and like the give and take mm -hmm. of like who you're who you're speaking with or performing to to uh, the success being like based on that, like how it goes or whatever. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I'm a, I'm a music teacher and I uh, have definitely taken that idea into like teaching, like kind of seeing it as more of a kind of creative performance than I may have before that occurred to me. Mm -hmm. And I was curious if there was anything from your days performing in bands that, or even just like reading your work or whatever that like, moves over to like how you teach a hundred percent like um yeah it's 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 different and it's also similar so there's a lot of like oh something's not working right now i need to change in the middle of what i'm doing right now you know like i need to mm -hmm. fix something or um i can read the i can feel that things are going weird in the room you know i have like that scanning sense mm -hmm. um but then also like wait, have I been doing this too much and it's just been the Anna show? Like, do I need to like let the rest of the room have its time on stage somehow? And um, understanding stuff like that has helped. Um, and um, mm, I'm not uncomfortable in front of people pretty much ever. No. Um, and yeah, I think it's that roll with what's happening right now performance thing I guess it's like a you know uh is it improv or something it's like I'm used to the fact of something terrible or weird happening like the amp 
catching on fire. And so then I just like, then I moved to the next thing, you know, <laughs> like, and right. we turn that into part of the show or whatever. And so, you know what I mean? Like, I think a lot of people who plan everything out and haven't had to roll with the punches in live performance a lot, just don't know mm-hmm. what to do in those situations. Um, right. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you wish we talked about that you wish I asked about that you would like to, that yes. you would like to bring up? Tell me about what you're writing. Um, I've mainly been just writing lately. What I've been doing the last like couple of years is doing like spoken word or whatever, like poems or short mm-hmm. stories and whatnot. And then like putting like music under it. So I've, I've released like a couple of albums that way, but like, yeah, I mean, it's mainly just like poems and whatnot. Like I don't have like a large, like project I, I think of shit all the time but like I said like being yeah. able to like carry it out because of just like my attention span and whatever like gen- generally when I try to work on a longer project like it goes south pretty quick so I, I've been like mainly sticking to like short projects plus like you know life is life is hectic so it's it's but it, also like what is so much better about a long project I mean you know you can yeah. do certain things in it that you but you know also like why is that better you know, because you can maybe sell it or so. I don't know. It's yeah, not, I, it's not I, better. I, 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 I don't. I don't think it is. Um, it's just a matter of like when I have like more grandiose ideas. Like yeah. now, I try to like maybe con- condense it if possible into some like a smaller piece or whatever. And yeah. then if that goes well, then maybe like going from there. But like not yeah. starting off the bat with like I'm gonna write a one thousand page. Yeah opus or whatever yeah and i know it's going to be about all these things no it's like it's too much right plus it's like hard to like kind of have the thing in your mind where it's like this is going to be everything that like i want to say about like you know the world or whatever um as opposed to it just being like a a more like natural unconscious i I feel like whenever i try to like make something and have it be like this is gonna like (laughs) mean this in advance this is going to be like what's going on in in my head like i feel like that mostly sucks but then if it's like if if i uh fast right it's like you're just like i already thought this why do i care it's like you but you can't even keep doing it because then you come up with new ideas while it's happening right mm -hmm. it's like the ideas start coming if it's interesting and then you get off topic and then you have 50,000 pages. Right, right. Yeah, totally. Well, <laughs> this, this this has been great. Uh, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you so much, too. This is really fun. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you. Please consider setting up a small monthly donation at patreon.com backslash the creative curmudgeon or consider making a one-time donation at venmo.com backslash the creative curmudgeon. Until next time, so long.